Hello, my friends, and welcome to Season 2 of the Land and Money Podcast. My name is Adam Gates. I am an architect in San Antonio, Texas, and this show is part of my journey to becoming a great architect, uh, where Season 1 was recorded as an appendix to a local housing event I was part of with ULI San Antonio. Um, season 2 really begins to open up to a greater variety in guests and topics and lines of inquiry. It's got a little bit different tone. Um, I'm talking to people from different places uh, that I've met on Twitter or through other professional functions. I don't have a set format or overarching theme really the way we did in season one. So this is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I hope you all enjoy it uh, as much as you did season one and you stick with me. As for pre-episode sponsorship notes, I don't have any sponsors yet. Um, I would like to, if you're interested in being a sponsor, please contact me. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, anywhere you need to. Uh, But I do owe a deep debt of gratitude to my friends and colleagues in the Urban Land Institute in San Antonio for their support, their encouragement, uh, and their participation. That's where I'm meeting a lot of the guests that you're going to be listening to. Uh, And also, I owe a debt of gratitude to all of you for listening and uh, giving me and my voice and my guests uh, a little bit of your time. So uh, thank you all very much as well. In this episode, I sit down with Omar Gonzalez. Omar's a local leader in the real estate development space. He's currently and recently the Director of Development at Pearl Build for the Pearl Development in San Antonio, and he is formerly the Director of Real Estate at Hemisphere, and that's what we talk about most today. Uh, Omar gives us a rundown of his background, experience, education, and all the cool projects he's worked on. Here's my conversation with Omar Gonzalez. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us on Land and Money today. It's an absolute treat to have Omar Gonzalez on the podcast. Omar is the current Director of Development for Pearl Build and previously Director of Development for Hemisphere here in San Antonio. Omar, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have it here. I have been listening to your podcast and really enjoying it. So thank you for all the work you've been putting in. Yeah, man. Thank you. Uh, so you just landed the position at Pearl Build. Uh, so we'll save that for last. But, you know, before that, you've got an interesting story about how you got to where you are, where you started, where you went, how you came back uh, and then spent this good chunk of your career on this very large, very complicated, very expensive uh, public private partnership in the hemisphere. So Start us off, man. Um, how did this whole career kick off for you? No, I'm a San Antonio boy. So uh, native San Antonio, born and raised. Um, actually went to Central Catholic High School. And, and my joke is, you know, you're from San Antonio because the next question you get is, where did you go to high school? I was going to ask. <laughs> yep. And then right after that, people will start saying, do you know so-and-so from that? Yeah, you got to connect the dots, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's, uh, that's San Antonio, as, as we say, the, the biggest small city. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I, I love San Antonio. I actually think that my experience um, at Central going to an urban city uh, played a large role in establishing the roots of kind of what I would consider to be a career that became focused on urban development. But I didn't know it at the time. And so uh, I went to University of Pennsylvania to the Wharton School there. And when I graduated from there, being a management consultant was all the rage. And, you know, everyone wanted to work for the McKinsey's and Bain's and BCG's of the world. And, uh, and, and I was lucky to get into management consulting or for KPMG Consulting and started here in San Antonio. And again, it's one of those things that like the points that influence your career at an early age that you may not even be aware of, but are happening in the undercurrents is that uh, I worked on very real estate related projects within management consulting. And so, you know, two of three of my projects were uh, one was, was helping the Alamo dome look at it kind of what they could be. This is back when the Spurs played the Alamo dome and we tried to figure out a future for that facility. Um, the second one was working on the transition of Kelly Air Force Base 
from an Air Force base to kind of its world post Air Force base. And obviously now we know that area is Fort San Antonio, but it obviously went through quite a transition period throughout and I was able to be part of that team that helped on the, on the early stages. Uh, and then on the, on the third one, uh, I got to work at Fort Sam Houston and at Fort Sam Houston was really um, kind of can, would work for the landlord, if you will. And at the time, the military was trying to cut back on the Department of Defense budgets. And so they were looking at what they were spending kind of throughout the, uh, the, the, the installation or the garrison and then trying to kind of cut down on it. And so kind of from a landlord perspective, was able to help Fort Sam Houston think a little bit more like a private sector landlord would think um, than a public sector. And it was kind of at that point in my career that, 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 I, that I started to realize that management consulting wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And, uh, and I made a transition to say, I'm gonna go to business school and, and it's kind of that sweet spot, you know, you work for four, four years, you go to business school and you kind of retool. Um, and I sent a dream application to Stanford University, not thinking anything of it. And when they accepted me, I, I called them back to make sure that it wasn't a mistake, that you know, they didn't get the wrong app but obviously, I was super honored um, to be in, you know, in the Stanford University uh, system. I mean, just incredible. If, if you've never been, it's 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 a it's literally utopia. <laughs> it's I, utopia. I haven't, but I've I've heard. I'm afraid if I go, I'll never come back. Yeah, well, that's what happened to me, right? So I stayed. I, I was like, I like this Bay Area. The the, the weather is great. The you know the people are really smart. It's uh, it's got amazing outdoor activities. It, great quality of life. Um, obviously you can't buy a home, but you can do all of that while you rent. And, um, and that's where I got into the development world and, uh, and actually started at a program that Marcus and Millichap has in Palo Alto. It's called the Corporate Rotation Program. So they're known for their brokerage, but they actually have almost a dozen subsidiaries and the rotation program takes you through those subsidiaries. And my favorite landing spot within that was the group that did uh, home building in the Bay Area. And so, again, just super fortunate to have a great uh, mentor there. And she was able to kind of show me um, a bunch of different projects. So everything from single family development to townhome to condominium. So I got to see sort of that whole pipeline of different densities around the Bay Area. And, and I loved it. This was 2004 to 2007. And then I get a call from out of the blue um, a Wharton classmate of mine who worked for a private equity firm in Philadelphia. And he said, hey, man, uh, you should go check out this firm. They're doing a bunch of development in Riviera Maya, Mexico, which is kind of that south of Cancun region. Uh, and they're looking for someone who fits your profile. So, of course, I go down to Playa del Carmen and, you know, it's paradise. And I'm, yeah. you know, 30 years old and single and thinking, why, why would I pass this up? <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, so that was my life. Again, timing um, is everything. And so I get down there and, you know, it's 2007 and things are gangbusters. And uh, we're actually working with Legoretta, you know, the famous designer of San Antonio's library uh, on a project down there and a beautiful condo hotel project, which I think I joked with you, the, the model for condo hotels is pretty amazing from an owner's perspective, because you get to sell all the units as a condo, cash out, and then you stay on as the hotel operator and run it as a hotel. <laughs> so in a model, it's like, it always works. <laughs> yeah, right. The problem is reality, right? And sure. uh, reality struck, um, as everyone in this business knows, um, making, you know, 2009 a really tough year. Uh, by the end of, two, by probably the middle of 2009, the company that I work for, along with all its funders, which were mostly uh, private equity and venture capital, they said, we're taking our money back, go sell everything and let's get out of there. So the writing was on the wall. I thought, you know, what do you need a director of development in Mexico? And it's really just a director of dispositions. Yeah, right. Um, and at the time, like it's, it's, you know, it's real estate. And, and if people aren't putting money in, um, you know, there's not really jobs uh, to be had. And, and I think you shared similar experience coming out of school, maybe at that time. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. A great, a great time to be an architect. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Perfect graduation year. Perfect. <laughs> 
And, uh, and that's when I started thinking about my future. And um, on, a, on, a, on a side note, I, I take a trip around the world and happen to meet my wife on the trip. And, you know, that's one of those things where timing is everything. Right. Uh, and also when you're not looking for something is sometimes the best time to find it. So um, a couple of life nuggets in that, but I won't, I won't bore you with the, my personal story other than I come back home to San Antonio. And, uh, and at that point, I'm really passionate about urban development, mixed use, uh, walkability, um, creating a better San Antonio. It's this, this is like, I, I felt like I've got enough education and enough background that I gathered from my experiences to really kind of hone in and bring it to San Antonio. So I started looking around and I said, well, who's doing really cool mixed use urban developments in San Antonio? And, uh, and Pearl at the time had just started, right? I mean, I think they were working on, you know, their first building. And so I had a chance to meet Bill Schoen. We hit it off really well. And uh, he just didn't really have a position for me at the time, but he, uh, he later on says, well, what do you think about what they're doing at Hemisphere? And it's like, oh my God, yes, like this is perfect. I love it. And, uh, and yeah, so that partnership started. Uh, I met Andres Andujar, who's the CEO there. And he's now my, was my partner for 10 years. He's, you know, I consider him a brother uh, and a mentor. And, and he's been an, an exceptional leader and a visionary for San Antonio. And we, so it, we really just almost clicked immediately. His skill level is very much, um, you know, that higher level thinking, the visionary. Uh, he's amazing at that stuff. I feel like I'm the really good kind of uh, guy behind the guy that can connect the dots and get things done and execute. And, and uh, you know, I'm more kind of financial focused. He's a little more kind of vision focused. And so we just mesh really well in terms of our skill set. And that's how it all started. We, uh, when I joined Hemisphere, they were in a master plan process which um, I will say a lot of lessons learned on that. <laughs> I think what we didn't anticipate was the level of public input that was required for a project of this magnitude. Right. And the good news is that we pivoted and we were able to do that public engagement, but it was definitely not what we had forecasted. Well, so uh, I know that you spent 10 years telling the story of, hemisphere and everything that's going on there and so i'm gonna let you tell that story but just to tee this up for anybody that might not be from san antonio the area that omar is talking about is just shy of 100 acres in the heart of san antonio's downtown it's actually a very large portion of san antonio's downtown it's got a long history um and at the time Omar is coming in to master plan the entire uh, reconstruction and revamping of this 96 acres, uh, it would have included a very large civic convention center owned by the city, the San Antonio, a portion of the San Antonio Riverwalk, a newly built Grand Hyatt Hotel adjacent to the convention center, the Tower of the Americas, which is San Antonio's major piece of monumental architecture, a state-owned Institute of Texan Cultures, uh, some federal buildings that include the Social Security Administration and a federal courthouse, a children's theater, uh, a Mexican Culture Institute, a portion of the University of Mexico, uh, about a dozen different fountains and probably about a dozen um, large historic homes that would eventually be that would need to be renovated and turned into offices and restaurants add to all of that um, a fair amount of parking lots adjacency across the highway to the Alamo Dome and big plans beyond that for new parks and new water features and big hotels and a convention center expansion. Omar, did you know what you were getting into? <laughs> when you say it like that, I'm like, holy shit, why would I do that? <laughs> but yeah, I think um, for me, it was, it was a combination of kind of what it could be, right? Like the potential for making a dramatic change in this part of downtown could have spillover effects 
that could just be magnified uh, throughout the city. And, and, and that's really, I think, what excited me the most. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a great setup for what you gave me. I'll, I'll give the brief history for folks that may not have been alive or may not be from here. But um, essentially, the area that we call Hemisphere was a neighborhood. It was part of really the kind of Lavaca, Southtown, King William neighborhood. It was, it was really an extension of that. It was, it was, it was mixed use. It had uh, religious facilities. It had um, bars. It had homes. It, it in, in the homes varied. Like you know, if you go through kind of Lavaca, King William, there's some small single-family homes and some large three-story mansions. Um, and so, for in order to prepare itself for a World's Fair, because World's Fairs were a big deal back then, uh, the the city went out and and partnered with the federal government. Uh, to get urban renewal funds. And so starting around 1964, um, using those urban renewal funds, uh, the city came through and, and with the power of eminent domain, which you don't see a lot anymore. Right. Um, they, they basically told people to, you know, leave their home and, 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 you know, they'd pay them and they'd get out of their homes and they would, you know, demo and clear way. They, you, know, you look at Alamo Street, how wide it is at that intersection, but it's it's very narrow if you go south or north. Mm -hmm. That was for the fair itself. And it really created an island. So the fair itself was six months. Uh, it ran from April to October. And it did attract millions of visitors. And quite frankly, it probably ignited San Antonio as a tourist destination to the rest of the world. Sure. And so a huge benefit in terms of kind of what it had created for sort of a sleepy town before that. Obviously for the fair itself, you know, it was, uh, it was one of those things that you want to build a tower that's a little bit taller than the last tower that was built, you know, it's yeah, right. the, yeah the tower, tower envy. <laughs> and, um, and so Seattle had the space needle. And so we built the tower of the Americas, which is just a little bit higher than the space needle to say that, you know, it was higher than what happened in, you know, a previous World's Fair. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, so, and then it just languished. And I, and I think like, if you look at kind of the legacy of Hemisphere 68, um, it was a big boom to the city for a really short period of time. And then the transition from that to something else literally took 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it used to have the Hemisphere Arena, which... I remember going to Spurs games back in the day before they moved to the Alamo Dome, which was before they moved to AT&T Center. Um, but other than that, you know, you, you take your occasional trip up the tower, you know, to see the views from, from the sky deck up there. You know, you go to Magic Theater as a kid, but there wasn't really anything else in there other than kind of these, you know, one-off tenants uh, that it had. And so it, it, it just had this history of kind of languishing. And... And, and, and there have been a series of master plans over time that, you know, because it was just so obvious, right? You, I mean, just like you said, it's 96 acres, practically like in, in the center of your city, um, and you have to do something with it. And so folks would get together and they would create a master plan and then nothing would happen because there was no funding behind it. And so huge props to leadership, right? Because at the end of the day, like to get something done, you need leadership and uh, started with Phil Hardberger and ran over into Mayor Castro's office. But those were the first two mayors to truly say, we're going to do something about this meaningfully. And they actually dedicated money towards it. And that's what kicked us off. So, so when we had this master plan, we actually had money behind us for the first time to go and do a professional master plan that involved consultants flying in from out of town, from you know, people from in town. I mean, we, we held these meetings with 350 people in the office and the, one of them, you know, we, 350 people in, in the audience rather. And we have Legos and, you know, people are building like what goes there. And really the outcome of this was what I was passionate about. It was mixed use, urban, walkable, uh, parks, green space, places for the community, um, you know, uh, small businesses, and it was all the stuff that I just like, this is the stuff that I love. And you're absolutely right. When you put it all on the map, it was like, this is overwhelming. And even furthermore, it would be really expensive to do. And especially if your office is, is a two-person staff. So yeah, right. 
<laughs> so one of the first things we did is like, we need to hire up um, and we started bringing in a team. And then really the, the next big takeaway was take a bite-sized piece. And so if you look at the map in our Southwest corner, uh, the park is called Yanaguana Garden. Mm-hmm. We said, that's where we're gonna focus. And you mentioned that it had a playground there. It had an old uh, 1989 wooden playground structure um, that was built by the community. And it had you know, served really well for that period of time in which it was there. But a lot of the feedback we were getting in these public open sessions were that it didn't have visibility for people to see their children running. Because once they got into the wooden structure, you kind of had no idea where they were. Sure. Um, it had some, you know, some safety issues, some access issues. Um, and we said, you know what, San Antonio deserves better. And when we took this bite-sized piece, because of the initial playground location and because of the proximity to the Magic Theater, it just resonated that this has to be an area for children and young families to play. And that was our, our design statement was really centered around this, no- this notion of play. Play for all ages, play for all abilities. And, uh, and so when we did that, it, it just kind of, it, 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 you know, I, I think once you set out the vision in the, in the design statement, it really sort of filters your thinking. And it led us to one of the, the most experienced play experts in the world, uh, uh, the, the late uh, Susan Goldsman, who worked for MIG. And she had done playgrounds around the world. And this, at, we didn't know at the time, but this kind of happened to be her last playground that she did uh, before she passed. And, and it was really her gift of saying, this is putting together everything I've learned over my career into one area. And I think the beauty of Yanaguana Garden when you go is that it just hits you in so many different senses. Um, the, the, the play is designed for all abilities. We literally thought of you know people on wheelchairs. Uh, it's designed for all ages. You'll, you'll see toddlers, you'll see grandparents, you'll see everything in between. Uh, it's exhilarating when you play. You can feel your, your your heartbeat jump. It has this layer of history in it. And so if you wanted to learn more about the Asekia or you wanted to learn more about what Yanaguana means, that's all in there. It has this element of art, uh, this creative uplifting. It has throwbacks to 1968 uh, for the World's Fair. And then it has throwbacks to the neighborhood before the World's Fair. Uh, and so all that in this four-acre uh, area uh, was 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 really kind of our incubator, if you will, for the bigger sure. ideas of what Hemisphere could be. Well, and so that was just beginning construction when I moved to San Antonio in 2014. Yep. Um, and you know, I think the you got the you got the effect you wanted. You know, I showed up uh, being from South Texas originally, not from San Antonio, but. Uh, moving here from Austin, I thought just as a touch point, and I was going to launch somewhere else because what's going on in San Antonio. And this is the one very memorable corner. I said, oh, things are happening in San Antonio. Things are starting to move a little bit. Um, and it really does now that it's a few years later, the park's been open. Uh, some other areas have been revamped. You've got businesses moving into the old buildings. Um more events happening here. The Dia de los Muertos festival a couple months ago was amazing. Um, so it really, it seems like Yanawana was the, the first sort of snowball that you guys packed to roll down the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, so describe a little bit as that, as that opened up, I know that other areas of, Civic Park, other areas of the master plan were sort of being developed at the same time. But I would imagine that the the momentum and the success that you got from Yanawana would would have fed that a bit. So how did how did things evolve as you got this first uh, snowball rolling down the hill? Yeah, no, that's a that's exactly what happened. And so this notion of uh, what, I, what I strongly believe is this notion of building beautiful public places creates value for all the land around it. Mm-hmm. And we, we were able to prove that in a couple of different ways. And so one was taking those old homes 
uh, some, some of the homes as old as, you know, late 1800s. And, and we call it white box, but we basically we went in there, we refurbished the house, you know, structurally, interiorly, you know, the mechanical electrical plumbing systems. And then we were able to attract small businesses to come in and operate out of there. And, uh, and those are kind of, there's some cool stories embedded in that, but, uh, but really it was, it was this notion of, you know, what do people want when they go to a park? And, and I think the two obvious answers to us were coffee mm -hmm. uh, and pizza, uh, which is like, you know, the most kind of family-friendly meal you could have. And, uh, right. and so we were fortunate to land Commonwealth Coffee Shop, uh, Doe Pizzeria. Uh, our first tenant was the Paleteria San Antonio, which is a really cute story. It was a, a, a husband-wife team that was making paletas in the back of their dad's restaurant. And they came and asked if they could apply to, to be at Hemisphere. And we said, sure. And he does a business plan, but you know, it was, you could tell, you know, a more amateur uh, type business plan. And then he comes the next time and he brings paletas. And, uh, and I, I can still remember it was this beautiful um, avocado paleta. And I thought, avocado paleta, that sounds strange. And I took a bite and I was like, this is incredible. I was like, what else do you have? And, you know, he had, you know, hibiscus and he had, you know, mangonada and just these amazing like San Antonio flavors. Um, and we said, uh, you're in, man. You're, you got, you, you, we got to have you here. And so we helped them launch Paleteria San Antonio. Um, and then, of course, we started to fill in the other ones. That, uh, that, you know, they've had a couple of different iterations, but but really that like that was part of the snowball, right? It's like, hey, if people are coming here to play, people are going to stay here if they have other things to do. And so this notion of like, you can, you can eat, you can refuel, you can relax. Um, events was the other piece that was critical. Um, and we hired, I think, one of the best um, event managers around, uh, Tracy Luand, shout out to, to Tracy. Um, and she really started uh, pulling in a lot of these community events that that either were happening at a smaller scale or maybe hadn't quite yet formed. And so if you remember Dia de los Muertos at the time was in La Villita, um, and they needed more space. And we said, hey, we have more space. You got to think a little bit differently about it. But, uh, but they've been there for the last few years. And I, I think it's been a, a phenomenal success. And like you said, it just it really feels like it's this authenticity and this, this realness of what San Antonio is for us to all gather. Um, and then of course, the next piece was in kind of a two, twofold. So maybe I can talk about it in, in, in two ways, but it was really development. And so this notion of like, we need residents. Uh, San Antonio at the time had this housing first vision, um, which thank goodness it did. I don't, I don't know how else you could grow a sustainable district without housing. And so the housing first uh, notion, we had a one acre site. It was, it was a parking lot and we put it out for bid and we got David Adelman and his group uh, area to, to present something that we had, we had never envisioned something like this. We were thinking it would be, you know, stick built, you know, kind of garden style apartments. And he comes back with, oh, I can build this with a light gauge metal frame. And, and I can just stay under the high rise code. So it was technically a mid rise uh, and get about 150 apartment units in it and surrounded, um, surrounding a parking garage. And that was the, so that was the second fold was parking. So sure. development of parking. Um, and so this was our first P3, our first true kind of public private partnership was look, we own land. Uh, we want to see residents living there, but we don't have the wherewithal either, you know, via people or, or money. Um, so we had the land equation, but not the money equation to go back to the podcast title. Yeah, here. right. <laughs> we need a partner. Um, and so this was really in that vein of public-private partnership. Um, and the other piece of it is that the question that I got, regardless of what group I talked to, was if I'm going to go to Hemisphere or maybe even generally if I'm going to go downtown, I want to know where to park. And parking was just this constant question that we got. And so when we met with Adelman and he showed us his design, we said, well, can you make the garage any bigger? And he's like, well, yeah. I mean, what's the difference between a three-story garage and a five-story garage, right? Right. It's just money, um, but it doesn't affect the design. And, yeah, so, right. and so we basically, we leased back 
238 spaces that he would then build in an oversized garage to help us solve the issue of where do I park. Um, I think at the time it was maybe a little bit ahead of its time um, because we finished in 2019. And, um, and I think the setting of the apartment is, you know, it, it's not right on Cesar Chavez. It's actually on a new street that we created right. called Hemisphere Boulevard. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's right adjacent to Yanaguana Garden. It's seven stories. Uh, it's super cool, you know, David Lake design. And so, you know, it has like the beautiful brick, you know, features and some really colorful stucco. Um, and so it, it leased up slower than anticipated. But I will say, you know, if you if you talk to area, uh, that it, it, it has been really successful. And then my favorite part of that building is that they were using the downstairs, uh, like the downstairs corner for a leasing office and in uh, a gym. And unbeknownst to us, I guess they started thinking about doing more retail, and they came back to us, asked us if. Uh, they could do more commercial space. And I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I want to hear. Yes, please. And so if you go there today, you've got uh, Fox Street Social, uh, which is a restaurant on one corner. You have Rerooted on another corner. They took a little um, house that we had and they put lick ice cream in it. And then instead of it being a gym for just for the residents, it's actually a gym open to the public called Energy X Fitness. And so now you really start activating that downstairs. Now you've got residents um, living above it. And what also was really cool is we have a residential mixed income policy. So any new residential building built at Hemisphere has to have a minimum of 10% workforce housing. And we have a whole definition of what workforce housing is. But it was our way of saying like, we want the people who work downtown to also live downtown. Right. Um, you know, and, and you probably know all this, but you know, the cost of a car uh, can be like $7,000 a year. And if you could spend that money instead on, you know, food and other things, you can have a much better quality of life. And so, uh, and he took that. So again, he took that 10% and he actually made it 50%. So 50% of those units uh, are geared for folks who work in, in, in downtown. And, and what that then does is it, it lowers your need for vehicles and it creates more parking availability for the public. And so it's just been a really cool story. A lot of it was taking a risk. And again, if you look at the, the essence of a P3 structure, the, the public sector doesn't really take risk, right? Like, like we, we right. build things that are going to benefit um, society. Like they're, they're, they're meant to be a public good and a public benefit. Um, but the private sector is able to take those risks. And so leveraging, you know, capital that is out there able to take a risk on a seven story building with, you know, mixed income and, you know, 7,000 square feet of commercial space was kind of the perfect mix. And then, uh, and then the virtuous cycle is that as we get rents from the P3, from parking and from the small businesses on site and from some of the events, that that money all goes back into the park and it creates a, a better park that we're able to maintain, operate and activate at an even higher level. And that brings more people in. More people means more shoppers, more potential residents. And so hence that virtuous cycle of, uh, of a P3 really creating a park that otherwise would just be a burden on taxpayers. It now becomes part of the community with a financial sustainable model it can last for generations. So I really, that's an excellent description of how all this went down. I want to drill into it just a little bit more to talk about is I think it's a theme that leads into some of the next big things that are happening at Hemisphere, or at least planned to happen at Hemisphere is the stewardship that Adelman showed and took upon himself in a lot of the things in this project, I mean, you, 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 you talked about them all, but I think it's worth emphasizing how, how special and sometimes how rare that is. Um, and I might be interested to hear what maybe some other people brought to the table because 
a whole lot of things that you described that he did weren't things that he had to do. He did it because he's been successful in his career. He loves his city. Uh, he's reached a point in his in his development that it's important for him to do something special while he's building his business. Um, so if you can contrast that with maybe some of like, what else did you see coming in and how has this spirit of stewardship helped to shape some of the other plans that are being made for hemisphere? No, that's a great question. So, you know, the, the next P3 that we have is, a. Uh partnership with an, an old San Antonio legacy name. Um, and so HB Zachary was part of the original 1968 World's Fair, um, you know, team and in, in selection and putting that all together. And so he famously built the Hilton Palacio del Rio. And if you don't know that story, it's worth seeing the video, but it's, you know, they were, they were pre-constructed modules that were already fully furnished and they were developed, they were brought in by helicopter, yeah, like landed in, in uh, yeah, it was a total future building built in 68. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and so David Zachary put a team together to, to complete our next P3. Uh, and it was definitely an audacious plan that, you know, we went from kind of a one acre, 151 mixed use, mixed income apartment buildings to five and a half acres. Uh, over 350 residential units, a 200 room hotel, at the time a 90,000 square foot office, at the time a you know, 25,000 square foot food hall, underground parking. I mean, it was, it was, a, uh, it was a truly kind of audacious vision that, um, that allowed us to select that team for our next P3. Um, and, and just to, just to tee up a little bit something about this to create sort of literally the groundwork for it. Um, the piece of property that Omar is talking about that would that is going to become a big new civic park uh, with eventually all of these adjacent buildings around it was previously occupied by a portion of the convention center. Uh, and in this same time period where we're talking about building out Yanomana Garden and all these master plans, this particular corner of the convention center was being demolished and the convention center expanded in the other direction towards the highway. So this cleared up, uh, what about seven well, acres more? Yeah. Yeah. Almost yeah. 12. Yeah. 12, yeah. This cleared up 12 acres that really, that is the corner, the main corner of downtown, a block from the Alamo, uh, where commerce, Alamo Street and Market all come together. Uh, the Riverwalk passes under Commerce and Market uh, to create this grotto at the convention center. So, I mean, this is this is the prominent corner of downtown that's now being reimagined. Yeah, no, thank you for the rewind because it, it the the context of it all is exactly that. It's 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 land that was used for the original 1968 exhibit halls A and B at the convention center. And, and at the time the study was saying, look, these are severely outdated. Like no one in the convention industry is interested in buildings that have this many columns and this low uh, you know, roof height, uh, ceiling height. And so that kind of spurred that whole notion of expanding to the East, making this part um, you know, really uh, a, a non-marketable building. And, uh, and so, yeah, the, the huge vision from the city um, to come up with this notion of, well, let's demo the building and, and, and put it in the hands of Hemisphere, the, the organization that, that I'm with. And, and then another huge piece, because I forget all this, but another huge piece is like, well, what do we do with that? And there were some folks who thought that that whole thing should be a park. And I think for us um, and what we had learned from visiting other successful urban parks is that you don't just stick a park out on all its own in an urban setting, because what you want is really kind of what we showed at Yanaguana Garden is you want places to go to, you want buildings to retreat into, you want things to eat and to drink and to, and to keep you there longer. You want you know, stages and, and places to have performances. Like there's all of these things that you want that don't look like 
just green grass. Right. And it was really hard, Adam, to like tell the public that because I think in people's minds, they think of like a park as being this, you know, like nice green uh, respite. And I don't think they're wrong in that. I just think there's a very different definition between a suburban park and an urban park. And if you travel, you know, the, the nation, you can really see these successful urban parks like a Millennium Park and, a, you know, Bryant Park. Right. That yes. Yeah, San Antonio is a big city that's trying to learn to be urbane. Uh, yes. and it's, you know, there we get some growing pains sometimes. There's some growing pains indeed. Yeah, I, I, yeah, we can share those stories if we have time. Um, because we, we, you know, we're, we're in that, we're, we're in that um, conversation, right? Because it's, it's, it's what we've always done and what the metrics measure versus what is the best practice thing to do that you will not see a benefit until later. Mm -hmm. um, and, and my favorite example um, is, is the streets. And if you look at the streets that we built in Hemisphere, there are 10 lanes in each direction. It feels like you can only get one car through, but guess what? You can get two cars through <laughs> 10 lanes is plenty of width for two cars. Um, you know, we, we put bollards on there, like everything is designed to slow the cars down in favor of pedestrians, wheelchairs, strollers, right. even bicycles and scooters, if you will. But like it's, it's it, 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 in, in, you know, the street designers, they don't like it, right? Because they want the metrics to show how fast can a car move from point A to point B. And, and when they look at its, you know, level of service, right? They want to see these streets that are graded high levels of services. You know, they grade them like you grade a school paper, you know, A, B, C, D, you know, all the way through F. And so it's this notion of like, we cannot have traffic. Um, and, and, and we spin that in a way of like, well, why not, right? Like if, it's, if it is in service of those people who are not in a car, then like, that's okay, right? Like if you're now making the level of service for a pedestrian that much better quality. You're making the level of service for a cyclist that much safer. Like those are then the trade-offs that are worth it. Um, and uh, again, question there, yeah, because I know this is important for this is important at Pearl as well. Yep. Um, as an engineering problem, like you said, there are these there are these metrics that. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to insult traffic engineers, but, but this stereotypical traffic engineer that we're, that we're talking about, wherever that person is, um, we're all trained to pay attention to some metric or another, and we have some benchmark for success for what success looks like. And it sounds like, you know, the typical benchmark for success in traffic design has had to do with vehicles um in your experience doing this are there are there metrics for the movement of pedestrians the movement of bicycles that we can point to i mean is it is it, is it measurable or something that we're measuring so that we can improve it and sort of maybe change the mindset of that engineering brain to say no 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 success isn't these numbers success is these numbers and like reframe the conversation I, yes, yes, absolutely. And so if you look at, you know, like California, for instance, they just said, we are no longer grading streets on the old level of service, vehicular level of service calculations. Like they just, they threw it out the window. Like that's not a metrics that we use. But I like this notion of like, let's just combine this metrics so that you look at pedestrian level of service, you look at uh, bicycle level of services, you look at wheelchair level of services, and, and then like, what is the trade-off, right? Because I would much rather have a street that operates as a C that is an A for pedestrians, bicycles, and wheelchairs than a street that operates as an A for vehicles and a C for the other users. And then that becomes kind of the policy discussion. It's like, well, like what are we valuing, right? Are we valuing how fast a street can get through or, or are we valuing the safety? of these other individuals. And so that's something that I know like the city has this um, 
vision zero, you know, like no, no, no accidents. Um, and if you look at like, like if you look at lethal accidents from a vehicle perspective, if the vehicle is traveling less than 20 miles per hour, the probability of it being a lethal pedestrian or bicycle accident is way, 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 way lower than even like at speeds of 25 and 30 miles an hour. So this whole notion is like, look, I think we can all get along, right? Like yeah, I right. think we can just slow cars down. You can still, you know, move in your car, but let's not determine that the speed of you moving through a space is the most important uh, character for a street. And so if you go to Yonaguana Garden, I, I really encourage you, drive on the street. You, you will feel like you're speeding if you're going 50 miles an hour. Like it feels natural in that street to go. I think we're posted speed limit of five miles an hour, but it feels natural to go like five to 10 miles an hour. Uh, it feels natural for uh, a pedestrian to cross the street. Like I see people cross the street without even looking both ways because it doesn't feel like a street. Um, and then and then you're seeing that at Pearl too, right? Where like the Pearl campus you used to be able to drive through it and they slowly pushed out cars and created just a more pedestrian friendly kind of internal space. And, and I think that's the future of sort of this urban notion of like, I, you know, obviously we're not going to get cars out of Texas, right? Like we've sure. got to learn how to, how to, how to, you know, work with them. And, and, and I think that's it, right? Is, is like you, you have a place for your cars and you deal with them, but then you protect the pedestrians and you have these areas where like they feel comfortable, um, you know, walking around and, and commingling. And actually, I've, I was remembering this, Andres put it a great way because um, we're having this discussion with, you know, traffic engineers. And I said, so, so you're concerned about the guy that's sitting in his car with his AC on, uh, listening to his favorite song, but not the pedestrian who's like, you know, sweating, walking in heels, like trying to get to her destination. Like, is that, is that yeah, the right priority? <laughs> well, you know, and man, people are going to get tired of me talking about Barcelona, but man, I love Barcelona. Um, and when I visited there, it is such a pedestrian oriented city that I, I finally got it. I was like, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. Right. And what I think is great. And this is kind of going back to that idea that like San Antonio's trying to figure out what it means to be urbane. Right. Like we're, we're getting it. And I think, I think that healthy pedestrian spaces are a huge part of urbanity and when i say urbanity i don't just mean the physical part of it right i don't just mean the the the, the physical objects of cities and streets and everything else i mean a, a a the the sense of self that a city and the people in it have a sense of their identity and i you know san antonio has not been really a city of people that like to walk around because where's there to walk you know um i grew up in a small town way down south of here there's nowhere to walk to you know um and so i think you're absolutely right and hemisphere in particular and the pearl have created these like aha moments of like oh this is what being in a city is supposed to feel like there's places to sit down it's 100 degrees outside but there's enough shade for me to not feel like I'm miserable. I don't, I'm not afraid of getting run over by a car. Oh, so it's an easy sell once you create the experience. Um, and I, I know for a fact that Hemisphere has been a big part of that. Um, now you mentioned some of the other stuff, some of the big stuff coming, this other P3 partnership with Zachary. Uh, Civic Park, congratulations, by the way, Civic Park officially broke ground. The other the, day, the joke know. was that, yeah, I, I, I had to leave for it to break ground. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I, I left the week before we had our uh, groundbreaking ceremony. But yes, thank you. It's, and and I, I seem to remember that shovels were about to start moving on the new P3 parts right as COVID hit. And so, um, you know, I'm sure some of that is you know, there's probably certain elements of this that you're not at liberty to talk about, but because we're hopefully coming out of the other side of a 
global crisis. Can you speak a little bit about, in the context of these P3 deals, how something that for everyone involved is huge and ambitious and all of the intentions and players and sort of hearts in the deal are in the right place, but then a pandemic hits. And how does that, how does that change the conversation? How does it change the vision for the future? Yeah, you know, it's a good question, right? Because uh, Andres likes to say that architects learn that form follows function. And then later in life, you learn that form follows funding. And so it's all about having the money and the capital to do something. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, the pandemic hits and hospitality just tanks, right? Like there was, we were, we were calling investors around the nation saying, do you know anyone who would invest in a hotel right now? And the answer was like, no, <laughs> like why? Let's, let's see what happens with this pandemic before we do it. Uh, obviously, in retrospect, it was a, it was a short-lived downturn for hospitality. I, I think um, you know San Antonio has rebounded very nicely, and you know props again to the city leadership and, and and civic leaders who have who have helped made that happen. Um, but yeah, you know COVID and the in the pandemic for us was a really interesting pivot because we had been really struggling with this notion of you know because the, the the park had pretty much been designed. But the edge of the park, we want it to feel like it's seamless with the edge of the P3. And it's really important to us that it, from a, from a visitor perspective, you don't know where the property lines are. Mm -hmm. You know, you're playing in the park and the next thing you know, you're grabbing coffee. Uh, the coffee shop is part of the P3, but the park is part of the park. Um, and so that to us was really important. So we always held off on the edges saying, well, we need the P3 to be designed so that we can design these edges. And in COVID is when it kind of hit us that we don't know when the P3 is going to be under construction. And the city of the, the city of San Antonio deserves this park sooner rather than later. And what our pivot was, was let's build what we can. So we didn't build all the way to the edge. The current civic park phase one is going to get you kind of everything in the middle and in the south. And so we're going to hold off on those other pieces that are a little bit more reliant on the P3, mm -hmm. but we're going to give you this most amazing green lawn uh, with a, with a balcones uh, stair area. It's going to feed uh, into a kind of a, a promenade that has a big like feature of water that resembles the old Asequia and, and actually runs parallel to the old Asequia alignment. And then that's going to cascade into these shallows, which are going to be these amazing limestone cut. We call them pools, but it's really only just, you know, a little bit of water, like sure. 12 to 18 inches of water you can put your feet in. And those um, are modeled after the Pedernales Falls, which is a great place to hike if you haven't done that yet. Um, but it has the water kind of seeping through the, the rock, the limestone, uh, in, 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 a, in a great shaded area. So all of that, we're like, look, we've got the funding, we have the design. Obviously the designers had to go back and figure out like what infrastructure needs to be there if you're just gonna do phase one. So that was our pivot in COVID and thank goodness, because um, I really think that having, again, like uh, I was just talking to this with a friend of mine, but I think people have trouble envisioning something um like people that are in the business we get it right like 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 we're able to look at drawings and be like oh that's what it could be right or we're able to look at renderings and be like oh my god that's so cool but i think the general public they don't see it or maybe they don't believe it until they experience it and i think our job as real estate developers is is to go do it and to get things to the finish line so that people know what we're talking about and I think that's the beauty of Civic Park Phase One is that pushing that through, showing people how beautiful. I mean, this I, I honest to God believe this is going to be the most beautiful public place in Texas. Like it is going to, people are going to be so excited. We, we've been we've been we planted trees two and a half years ago, so we're going to get these huge mature shaded trees that are going to shake. These limestone cut area pools are are going to be absolutely cool. like you're going to want to sit there and read a book or you know text your friend 
Um, and so what we're not going to have is, is we're not, you know, by the time the park gets built, uh, hopefully the P3s are under construction, but at least it will give you a preview of just how beautiful this space can be. Well, I don't have any doubts in my mind. When is uh, construction? When is the park supposed to open? It's supposed to open 23, late 23. Fantastic. Well, right as that was happening, uh, you found an opportunity to go work with uh, some of the other best guys in town over at Silver Ventures. Uh, everybody, hopefully everybody listening to this knows about the Pearl in San Antonio. And if you don't, then you should. And if you're not from San Antonio, you should come here and definitely visit the Pearl. Uh, it's, it's required. Um, but another group that is famous for stewardship, famous for having faith in the idea, faith in the process, and sort of faith in themselves to, to pull it off. Uh, tell us how you got there. And I, I know that sometimes Silver doesn't like to talk about some of the big things they got coming up, but uh, tell us a little bit about some, something about um, this new gig for you, your future, and the future of Pearl. Yeah, this is super exciting, I think, for, for San Antonio and uh, obviously for me too. I feel very fortunate to be uh, in this position. But so, uh, so, so just for clarity, uh, a little bit happened at Pearl before I joined, and they basically took kind of what Pearl is today and they divided it into three different businesses. And so the business unit that I fall under is called Pearl Build for now. We're actually going to probably rebrand it, but, uh, but it's this notion that like we're the development arm now. And what that's done is it's really kind of loosened the reins on our team that we don't necessarily have to focus on Pearl and uh, maybe even not necessarily focus on San Antonio, although that's probably something to be debated, but we're essentially a development team now. And so our role is to, is to build on the success of what this team has done over the last almost 20 years uh, and, and create more of these wins and, and create more ways to continue to transform San Antonio. And so I got to inherit really um, a lot of that institutional knowledge in that beauty uh, of what they've done in place. And so our goal is, is really to, to kind of keep doing it. So we have three projects that our group is responsible for. And, um, and then I'll tell you a little bit more of what's happening at Pearl, because I think that's kind of the more short-term exciting stuff. Um, but a seven-story apartment building on the other side of the river from where the Cellars and Hotel Emma is, um, and that might have a really cool uh, idea to do an ice house, like an informal ice house, old school San Antonio style on the river nice. uh, in front of that apartment building, which would be really cool. Um, we're looking at doing another office. We actually want to attract a large corporate presence that maybe isn't in San Antonio now to come in here. And so we're obviously working with uh, the city and greater SATX to try to bring in a little bit more corporate focus. I, I enjoyed reading the newspaper article the other day that called Lower Broadway the financial center of San Antonio. Uh, and that's a lot of the credit goes to, you know, Credit Human and, and Pearl for their ability to to, to build that high rise and then Bank right. of America in the Oxbow. And then across the street now you have Jefferson Bank. And so really starting to form this, this district, which I think, you know, like you said, uh, the, when you look at the characters of urbanity, you've got to have these districts that, that people don't even think about. They just go because they know that there's always something happening there. It's not, you know, they don't have to say, oh, it's, you know, it's not the first Friday, so I can't go today. Um, so those two projects, and then uh, I think probably what's maybe most exciting to me is the old SEISD headquarters. Uh, and that site is exciting for me really for two reasons. One is it's across Cesar Chavez from Hemisphere. So I call Hemisphere my third baby because I actually have two babies. Well, they used to be babies, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, but Hemisphere was before that. So <laughs> there's my, it's my, uh, my oldest child. And then we live, uh, my wife and I have made a home in the Southtown Labaca community since 2012. Cool. And so having this four acres in, you know, just south of Hemisphere uh, to really become the front door to what's happening in Southtown. Uh, and again, I think 
housing first is definitely the mentality because I don't think you can say neighborhood without having residents. And so I think building up kind of the, the, the residential, um, you know, numbers in that area is going to be critical too. So those are kind of my, like my, my three projects, but then I wanted to tell you Pearl, uh, has some really cool stuff coming around the corner. And so this is all like in the next six months, um, the, the parking lot where maybe you used to park to go to, uh, El Sonio or green is going to be a park, uh, uh 1100 Springs park. Uh, in honor of the 1100 springs that were used in the, the old Pearl. Oh, cool. Uh, the can. Um, and then a new concept where green used to be that's going to be more like a diner concept. A new concept where El Sonio used to be that's going to be um, kind of a Israeli Middle Eastern concept. Nice. Um, yeah. And then across the street. So you remember the Liberty, the old Liberty Bar, the original one, the Baylor building, and it got moved a couple times. So it's it that's now landed in its final location, and they're building around it. And that's going to be this like, and I don't know if I can announce that one, but it's going to be this amazing like South Texas cuisine. Um, okay. It's it's going to be tremendous, incredible. Um, and so so all those things are happening now to be delivered to the public soon. And then the other piece that were, uh, that's currently under kind of development or, 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 you know, under iteration is the Pearl Stable uh, as a live music venue with a beer garden outside of it. And then the old kind of, I call it the Aveda Institute, they call it the garage building, but right. uh, where the Aveda Institute used to be is rethinking that as to being more of kind of like an entertainment place for adults to go to. And so the, the notion that Pearl that they heard, so again, like I'm just so fortunate to work with these organizations that listen to the community. Yeah. And so what, what, what people at Pearl said is, hey, it's a great place to grab dinner. Then what? And then like I go there, I grab dinner, and then I'm like, now what? And so really we're starting to fill in this notion of like, you can come for dinner, you can stay for a show, you can stay and go somewhere to play, you can stay and, you know, have a drink, or you can, you know, come to lunch and your kids can play. Like, we're starting to really fill out the rest of your day uh, so that this becomes not just a place to come for dinner, but really a place to gather. And that's is the coolest part about, about Pearl is that their notion is around human connectedness. Right. When you're telling me the story of Barcelona and about these people walking, I start to think that like nothing, um, nothing really happens in a car, right? Like it's so, it's so impersonal that probably the only interaction you ever have with another car is when you're angry at it, right? When you're yeah, like right. Giving, giving, honking at them or giving them the finger. Right. But, it, but when you're walking, you just, it, you, you have this like natural human instincts to like either like help someone or just talk to someone and you have like these interactions that that become like part of community and i think that's really the beauty of these two projects hemisphere and pearl is that they've ignited this notion of like what it means to be san antonio what it means to be part of this community and at the end of the day like that's what it's all about like that's what i'm really proud of well I am super impressed by all the work that you've done and this career that you've carved out for yourself. I mean, your, your fingerprints are going to be all over some of the most special parts of San Antonio. And it's just, it's so cool to know you, man. And to know you right now, this is great. Yeah. Thanks, man. I, I feel honored. I really do. I feel blessed. Well, so I always ask our guests to end the show with a call to action, something that you want the audience to do, see, hear, or learn. What's your call to action for everybody today? Mine's easy. You probably could have guessed it, but um, I, I, when I came back to San Antonio, uh, I got really invested in the Urban Land Institute, uh, ULI. And it's one of those organizations that's volunteer led. We do have a couple of staff members looking to hire one more if you're interested. Um, but from a volunteer perspective, it's just one of those things where like you get out of it, what you put into it. And so my encouragement is one, join ULI if you're not already a member. If you are a member, uh, get really engaged. Like the depth of ULI is incredible. And when I say that, like, I think at a local level, we've established some really cool stuff. I know, Adam, uh, you're involved in the local member council in the, in the housing group. Y'all recently 
hosted the housing summit, uh, which I think brought together tons of members of the community. I got enormously positive uh, reception from that event. Um, but that just goes to show you the power of ULI and the power of individuals within ULI to make things happen. I know your group, you know, people like Thad Rutherford and, and Summer Greathouse, uh, who you've had on the show, uh, were instrumental behind that. But it's, it's one of those things where, like, if you dig in, you can truly make a difference. And so I think the platform of ULI allows us to have global expertise. It gives us these resources that are available from around the world, really around the nation around what best practices are, how to, how to do things, and then, and then access to individuals who have that experience, who have done it. And so I've, I've just, I've, again, like, I, I've been really fortunate that I've, I've dug deep into ULI. I've, you know, I started out as a member of the programming committee, and then I chaired the programming committee, and then, uh, you know, I, get, I got uh, tapped to be the, the next chair after Madison Smith, and then uh, my chairmanship actually ends in four months, which is crazy. Um, it's a two-year term. But then what I've what, what, what it's also done is it is exposed me on a national level. And so I sit on a product council nationally. And every spring and fall, we have meetings in really cool cities where we get to talk about what we're doing, what they're doing in other places. And it's really just that access to information and knowledge um, that I think is really valuable. And I think especially if you can dig the topics that we were talking about earlier about San Antonio, uh, the principles of ULI are really going to be our guideposts in terms of how do we do it and how do we continue to do it. Amen, man. I'm with you. That's obviously how we met. Uh, so there you go, everybody. Uh, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, uh, check out ULI, uh, even just a little bit. Because uh, I, I just echo everything that Omar says. The, the networking is phenomenal. Uh, so... Omar, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been uh, a really wonderful conversation. My pleasure, Adam. That's all we've got for today's show, everybody. Thank you again for joining me. Uh, and if you haven't found me already, uh, look me up on Facebook. You can find the show on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, Twitter. Not on TikTok yet. Uh, maybe someday. Uh, find me, uh, join the conversation, and let me know if there's anything that you would like to hear that you haven't heard already. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bye-bye.